Welcome everybody to the eighth episode of Quarantine Market Podcast, where some academics get together and talk about particular keywords in the current historical moment. Today's keyword is dystopia, and we will take a particularly perverted view on the concept. Joining us today is James Fitchett. Alan, would you like to give James a proper introduction? Yes, uh, James Fitchett is professor of marketing at the University of Leicester, and uh, his work over the years has looked at issues like sadism. Uh, he was an early uh, person to embrace postmodernism in marketing and a core figure around the general area known as critical marketing. And we're very happy to have you with us today, James. Thanks, Alan and Joel. It's nice to be here. The topic that we've selected today is dystopia. But is it possible to talk about dystopia without first foregrounding it with utopia? Do the two concepts kind of correspond to each other? Uh, I think that's a really great question, Alan. And uh, I think the answer to it simply is yes. But I think we could even extend it beyond that, really, which is I think it's reasonable to think of the idea of utopia existed before the idea of dystopia at least in a literal sense. But I think it's also to recognise the fact that the idea of utopia has existed long before the concept of utopia. And therefore, it's reasonable to think that dystopian ideas of an equally timeless quality. I mean, I'm, I'm always reluctant to be universalist about any social or cultural idea. I mean, while ideas such as happiness, love, satisfaction, terror, boredom, excitement and so on are all, if you like, culturally relative in that I think we can imagine societies or historical periods where some of these ideas either did not exist at all or meant something very different than their current usage. I'm more inclined to think that utopian thinking, some kind of utopian imagination, has a more universal quality, if only because human beings experience their lived realities and so can also presumably imagine other ways of being, some of which are worse, which we might call dystopian, and some which are better. So I don't know, uh, for nomadic people, maybe the utopian imagination was a place where the migration of animals was endless, or for people living in the first settlements, maybe it was an imagined world where crops never failed, or wild beasts never attacked, or where the gods always answered your prayers and cured pestilence and disease. Perhaps the first recognisable utopia is Plato's Republic and various visions of heaven serve the medieval imagination with its utopian content. So if that's true, then it suggests that there is also the looming fear of the dystopian imagination, where, if you like, animals never return, crops always fail, prayers are never answered. Visions of hell are some of the most powerful and terrifying visions of dystopia that we have. So before I go on to say something more about contemporary dystopian narrative, it's worth noting a couple of interesting observations about utopian imagination. The first is that it's not altogether clear whether or not the idea of utopia necessarily meant to be received as a vision of a better world. I'm thinking here of Thomas More's utopia. Or indeed, whether or not he ever meant that to be an achievable world. Utopia is conventionally thought of deriving from the term nowhere, which would suggest that utopia is not anywhere, and so not a real, achievable or desirable place. 
Secondly, Moore's nowhere or utopia does not necessarily imply any moral or ethical valuation. I don't think nowhere or utopia is necessarily good or bad. It is quite literally nowhere at all. So I think we can look at Thomas More's original utopia, both as what we would now call a utopia, but also a dystopia. Now, in modern usage, I'm going to use the idea that utopia is preferable, desirable, altogether that better imagined alternative society in existence, whereas we take dystopia to be the opposite. That is a vision of a less desirable, an unpleasant or an altogether worse imagined society. Now, of course, one person's utopia is another person's dystopia, and we'll come, we can come on to talk about that in a minute. Also, most utopian narratives are by their very structure exclusive. Now, what I mean by this is that they usually rely quite heavily on the idea that some institutions, practices, and more importantly, some groups and individuals will not exist or persist, whereas others will survive and flourish. The most obvious example of this is in the idea of heaven, as a Christian heaven, which is, after all, a quite exclusive place reserved for the righteous and the blessed. In Butler's Erewhon, for example, technology is absent. So we might say, at least structurally, all utopias imply a dystopia and vice versa. I mean, while salvation is no doubt desirable in and of itself, it's made all the more so when one is able to observe all the wretched and damned condemned to suffer in torment and misery. Uh, one of my favourite accounts of this is Francisco de Quevedo's Dreams and Discourse from the early 17th century, where he's permitted to travel through the halls of hell and then able to witness all of the evil and damned getting their comeuppance for all of their ill-lived lives. For us, at least, the golden age of utopias was the 19th and 20th century. Indeed, this is, in some regards, what postmodernists refer to as the grand narrative, where the big, bold, progressive visions of the future is defined and justified as the basis for present policies and action. Both 20th century fascism and communism were utopian narratives. And there is certainly something distinctly utopian about the fragmentary grand narratives that struggle to maintain credibility in the 21st century, whether they centre on technology, environmentalism, or various forms of social justice and injustice. So all utopias imply a dystopia. Now, the classic dystopian novels of the 19th and 20th century are all political dystopias. Orwell's 1984, Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, Zaniatin's We, Huckley's Brave New World, for example. And what I mean here by political is that they suggest that political utopian ideology end up creating a living nightmare in which the state apparatus becomes an oppressive tyranny. While I like to read utopian and dystopian fiction, I'm certainly no expert, though. And I, and I think that it might be helpful uh, for us to move on to some slightly more familiar territory, for me at least, which is to look at how dystopian ideas and utopian ones are translated into ideas around markets, economics, uh, marketing and consumption in particular. So, James, before we move to more contemporary notions of dystopia, I was really interested in the exclusionary ideas that come with the notion of utopia. 
even seems that the concept of utopia implies a certain selfishness. I'm reminded of Saint Augustine so many centuries ago writing how when you enter heaven, you can still peer through the clouds, so to speak, and observe the torments of people in hell. Of course, he had to write about that rather cleverly, saying that it's not that you enjoy it, this vision, but rather that you experience God's justice. And I'm also, of course, reminded of Plato and how he kicked out the poets from his republic. So what would you make of this idea of a certain selfishness that comes with the notion of utopian thinking? Uh, well, I think the idea of the self is an interesting angle to take on utopia. Often, many of the kind of classic utopian narratives and, and also uh, modern ones as well have this strange relationship with the self in the sense that much of the utopian narrative is structured around the subordination of the self, if you like, to some greater idea. And we can think of fascism and communism as really good examples of that, whereby part of the problem in the contemporary dystopian reality is the construction of the self as, it's, as it currently exists and that somehow that needs to be transformed in some way. But, of course, utopia is, depending on the perspective from, from, from which it's written in, one is always in the preferred group. Yeah? One never imagined oneself to be uh, subject to the extermination necessary in order for the utopia to be uh, realised. So, in a sense, we could say as a in a very simple way that utopias are those imagined futures where my own personal interests or those of my class interests or group or clan or race or gender or whatever are given some kind of priority, and dystopias are those in which those very same identities are either eradicated or subordinated to some extent. What is so desirable and what is so, what, what is so enchanting about the idea of using utopian narratives as a means to wreak revenge upon those groups that we, uh, for whatever reason, have some distaste or dislike or a desire for revenge against, like the same with Plato is a good example of that. So, yeah, I agree. I also agree with this... Um, particular Christian sadistic narrative, of course, which is particularly delightful for me, in which we imagine heaven, in a sense, is a kind of fairly boring and dull place, yeah? Uh, okay, it's, it's probably nice to get there, and we meet other equally dull and uh, righteous people alongside us when we get there, but one always is left with the question is, what does one do in that environment? What would one do in, in the eternity of bliss? Well, presumably, very quickly, the only thing that would really captivate our interest in that environment would be to be able to delight and indulge in witnessing the torment and suffering of others. Yeah? And I think that we can find lots of parallels for this if we under, try and translate that into our understanding of contemporary capitalism and the way that consumer culture operates. James, one thing which is interesting that on the one hand, we can see that utopian thinking is clearly very ancient, if not timeless. But on the other hand, looking at Raymond Williams' keywords books, there's no reference to utopia, nor is there an entry on discourse, on story, on narrative, which are all commonplace now within social sciences and humanities approaches. My own instinct is that 
the academy started to become more interested in those issues as framing devices around postmodernism. But it is interesting how cultural studies itself doesn't seem to have an entry on narrative, at least in William's book. Is that the case, that narratives, stories, etc., discourse started to become more commonplace in the 90s to do with postmodern? And if so, can we problematize its rise? Well, I think that with, with any set of terms or frames of reference that we use to try and explain social and cultural phenomena, there's all, always this um, danger of a kind of retrospective allocation, if you like. Going back to what I was saying is that clearly one could reason that any uh, conscious human being ha- who's able to symbolically represent aspects of their uh, reality is therefore able to conceive and understand of alternative realities that could or should exist, yeah? Now, I think it's almost certainly the case that this preference for explaining and describing cultural phenomena using the language of narrative, of discourse, and so on, has got particular relevance for us since the 1990s. And so it doesn't surprise me, in a way, that that set of terminology and that language doesn't feature in the critical and social theory of the 50s and the 60s as much. And yet, ironically, as authors like um, Owen Hatterley and Mark Fisher have been telling us, that a lot of architecture and political imaginarium of that social democratic era, uh, including the uh, Bolsheviks, uh, was very utopian and futuristic in its thinking. They were arguing that that goes into decline around the start of the 20th century and continues today uh, in in the so-called post-political era. So it does seem kind of ironic that once upon a time, not not that long ago, there was a lot of utopian imagination at play, but culture analysis wasn't really thinking of it in those terms, perhaps. Yeah, uh, that's certainly one read. I, I suppose I... Part of me as well that reads it slightly different, which is when when we look at those big revolutionary moments of the 20th century, and I'm thinking particularly about the Russian Revolution or the suffragette movement or whatever, I think that when we look back upon those moments now from the vantage point of the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century, we make this assumption of of a utopian or a socially progressive narrative there. But I'm not, I'm not sure that we could necessarily do that. I think that a lot of those movements are grounded in a sense of pragmatism within the material conditions of class politics and gender politics of the time. In a sense, I think that those movements have, have as much to do with a practical response to lived experience of oppressed groups and, in lots of ways, groups of people that were really living in absolute absolute states of crisis and demands for change. Whether or not they saw themselves as utopian or not, I don't know. I think it's very convenient now for us to label those movements as being utopian in nature. But I don't think that was necessarily a primary driver for many of them. And I think that in some ways this is the thing that differentiates what I would call genuine progressive politics against kind of pseudo-progressive politics. So fascism, for example, was 
always designed as a utopian project. In fact, we could almost say that its utopianism was used as a means to justify its terror. Whereas I often find that uh, progressive political movements, emergence of the trade union movement, the emergence and progress towards civil rights in the US particularly, around gender emancipation, they're not grounded in grand narratives of utopianism. They're actually grounded in material pragmatism. It's when they become co-opted as utopian narratives, in a sense, that they become defanged to a certain extent. That's where I think that there is a real crisis for progressive and utopian thinking today in what you call the post-political. There's a sense in which we've got the, per- we've got the post-political utopian narrative that we're all very comfortable with, what, what, uh, however that's structured around the politics of the left or whatever. But what we lack is the ability to ground that in what we might call material practices, everyday realities, because primarily our main source of action, at least as we, as we conceive of it, is around marketplace behaviour, which by its very nature makes it very difficult to enact those kinds of pragmatic responses to, to social change. Just one question before we move on to consumer culture. There was a review on The Guardian recently of Picard, which is Amazon Prime's new uh, Star Trek show, where they revisit the character of Jean-Luc Picard. I gave it a go and I concluded that it was unwatchable. But one of the uh, comments was that it's remarkable how Star Trek in the 1960s was such a utopian show and the this latest iteration of it now is stripped of any type of utopian representation at all. The characters are quite bratty, there's a pessimism to it all, and it's quite telling that even in Star Trek itself there's this absence of optimistic utopian thought. Is there something in the zeitgeist, do you think, which prohibits utopian thinking? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is where we're going to move on to. I mean, there's a simple answer as to why it's really very difficult to conceive of utopias today. And that's because we are in utopia today. Yeah. Uh, And we can come on to talk about what that actually means. The reason why it is very difficult to imagine utopian futures is because we are in the utopian future. What does it mean to imagine utopia from utopia? Let's go to Thomas More's utopia and ask this question. What do the utopians dream of? Yeah? That is the condition, that is the challenge that we face, at least in what we might pejoratively term the West. Yeah? Okay. Or to use uh, Baudrillard's comment from Fatal Strategies, too bad we're in paradise. James, that's a very interesting comment. And now that you already mentioned Mark Fisher, I'm also reminded of his development of Derrida's notion of hauntology to sort of illustrate our present condition where the future is increasingly being cancelled, so to speak. So we no longer have any idea of anything ever changing in the future. So the idea of a promise of future is increasingly foreclosed. Now, that's very dystopian for this sort of scholarship, uh, sometimes also referred to as accelerationist 
thinking. Of course, in accelerationism, some radical ideas might see this dystopia as an actual utopia in the sense that in this frame of mind, the only way you could expect to see any change is a complete reconfiguration of thinking within capitalism. Of course, in acceleration, this means not to resist capital, but to rather accelerate its paradoxical tendencies to the point of collapse, or at least to the point of complete reconsideration of the entire system we live in. So these forms of thought rather tend to incline to the dystopian. Could you talk a little bit more about how you see the present condition as potentially utopian instead? Okay, uh, the easiest way for me to do that would be to step onto some slightly more firmer ground for me, and that is to try and locate this much more in uh, experiences of the market. Okay, so if, if once humankind invested its utopian desires in spiritual afterlives or future political salvation, then we could argue today it's invested in the market. That is to say that in practical terms, at least, the market is the source of utopian aspirations and that we look to consumption and consumer culture as the space that we can realise our utopian hopes and dreams. A better world, the better world, no longer only needs to be imagined or glimpsed at. We can actually go to it. We can visit it. We can observe it. And occasionally, some of us at least, can acquire it or parts of it. Now, in order to make sense of that, though, I think it's useful to distinguish between what we might call the spectacular utopian and dystopian spaces and the more mundane and everyday ones. And this goes back to the things that I was just talking about with Alan, about why do we have utopian narratives today, but we don't seem to have utopian action? So what I mean is that we can imagine brave new futures in which artificial intelligence or genetic engineering or some other advanced form of technology completely transform our world, satisfying all our desires, eradicating the mundanity of work, healing us of all ills. But these grand utopias are just that. They are grand and imaginary. And of course, they all have their associated dystopias. So we have the dystopia of artificial intelligence taking over the world or genetic engineering creating a new race uh, of humans or whatever. You know, we've got all of those grand utopian visions have also got with them their associated dystopias, yeah? In many ways, though, whilst I find them very appealing and they make good Netflix series and so on, so on I'm, I'm not that interested in them, apart from as entertainment simply because they won't impact most of us. But there is another form of utopia today, a mundane, everyday, what we might also call a democratic kind of utopia that many of us can and have the ability to experience. And the market and consumption is central to it. this. So let me explain what I mean by that with a rather trivial example. When you go into an IKEA furniture store, you're nudged onto this one-way walkway, kind of like a promenade, if you like. And that takes you through various domestic room layouts. First, we have a series of living rooms, then bathrooms and kitchens and bedrooms. Each layout is like a stage set, almost as if a family had just left 
to the adjacent room and will return at any moment. There are books on the shelf, cookware and crockery on the kitchen work surfaces, teddy bears and pyjamas in the beds. Each room is appropriate lit with lamps and shades, soft and hard furnishings and so on. Now, each of these spaces is kind of like a mini utopia, a little piece of domestic desire. But of course, we also know that if we tried to create these spaces in our own homes, it wouldn't be like it in real life. Reality would be less than perfect. So in, that, in this respect, our everyday reality in consumer society becomes a kind of uh, mundane and everyday micro-dystopia that we set against the mundane and small everyday utopias that are continually being simulated for us by advertising, social media, retail and marketing. Marketing, then, for want of a better word, is the organisation and the materialisation of mundane utopias. Uh, James Cronin and I have recently uh, done some work on Huel, which is a meal, uh, one of these meal replacement brands that essentially is about creating a kind of what we might have traditionally called a diet, diet replacement food product. But the way in which it positions itself is a kind of little bit of utopia in every uh, powdered mouthful. Um, Zizek's instructive on this point, I think, when he talks about the desire for things without any of the negative consequences. So he talks about, doesn't he, caffeine without coffee. So coffee that is good, i.e. that is utopian, doesn't exploit farmers, is grown ecologically and so on. What we want is utopian coffee. But whilst we might try to convince ourselves that this is what we're actually buying, in reality, we know that we're actually buying dystopian coffee that's probably quite bad for us, probably exploit workers, probably destroys the environment. This is what I mean by mundane dystopia and utopia. Now, the problem is that utopia is actually then somewhat of an anticlimax. What we thought was a utopia turned out to be not what we all dreamed of. That's not to say that consumer society is a complete dystopia in either. In fact, it would probably be better for all of us if it was. Rather, we're left with a kind of miasma of bland utopia and with it a bland dystopian feeling as well. And I think that that's what you're referring to, Alan, when you're talking about uh, Star Trek or whatever, is that yeah, there's kind of some utopian or dystopian elements to it. But generally speaking, I think the overwhelming feeling that I'm getting from what you're talking about there is just a kind of bland kind of mundanity where, uh, where it's, it doesn't really offer us anything either to get particularly happy about or particularly angry about. So utopia inherently comes with its dark side, plasticine, barren landscape of consumption, at least if you would invoke Baudrillard again. Uh, maybe, but again, I'm, I'm going to go back to these little mundane utopias, which provide us with, with momentary opportunities to indulge in almost like democratic fantasies are, that we don't really have to invest a great deal in, that are easy to consume, easy to dismiss. And I don't think we should underestimate the, the importance of those fragments, if you like, in uh, helping us to navigate and get through everyday life in a consumer society. 
uh, in a way, consumer society could be understood as understood as this continual struggle and search for small utopias, and then the and then the inevitable dissatisfaction that we we all experience when they fail to really live up to the promise. Yeah. I'm just thinking of a talking head song, perhaps you know it, called Flowers, which imagines a utopian uh, wilderness, and in it is some poor person who's just missing pizza huts and candy bars and microwaves, uh, and it, it, fi it finishes off with, don't leave me here, I can't get used to this lifestyle. I'm also reminded of Leotard's libidinal economy, where he has a rather scandalous section where he talks on behalf of an English worker saying that don't expect us to want any revolution. We just want to, in quotes, swallow the shit of capital until we burst all its commodities and so on. Uh, okay, I think this is, this is where I think that utopia and dystopia are really, really important ideas to understand modern society, probably more so than ever before. The reason is, is that, in a sense, utopia and dystopia provide valuable means to structure and organise social reality and the social imagination, okay? And I mean that as a system of values. The problem, though, is what happens, though, when we end up in a consumer society in which they become realisable, okay? So one of the striking differences between utopian thinkers of previous eras and now is that by definition, utopias were far off, no places, maybe a thing to be aimed for and striven for or avoided. But now we have utopia, or, as we just said, as Baudrillard says, too bad we're in paradise, yeah? Illusions are no longer possible. Now, one of the problems today, then, is not how to achieve to utopia, but how to live with it. And quite frankly, it's quite unbearable. Thankfully, there are some things we can do about it. We can dream and desire dystopia. If mundane utopias were the core commodities of material consumer culture, what you just referred to, Joel, as that kind of mundane uh, detritus, yeah, then I'd say that dystopian fantasy is the commodity of the post-material and the post-modern. While we've always desired utopian futures, whether or not it be a land of milk and honey or to live in the big rock candy mountain where all the cops have wooden legs, the bulldogs have rubber teeth and the hens lay soft-boiled eggs, or in Ikea where all the furniture matches and coordinates with one's perfect advert-like spouses and children, we've always desired something else as well. We've always desired the opposite of these things, the dystopian. And my feeling has always been that our desire for dystopia will always be stronger than the desire for utopia. And now it falls to the market to regulate, control, order, ration, and serve these dystopian desires and impulses. If we did actually realise IKEA, of course, something like the Truman Show or the Stepford Wives or something like that, we all know what happens next, right? We all know the next step of the story. And I'm drawn to George Bataille here. After all, we cannot understand animal and human sacrifice or religious inquisitions and witch trials or the massacres in warfare as anything other than the desire for the dystopian. I'm often reminded of the revisionist history of the First World War here. 
and this kind of lions led by donkeys argument. That's never been particularly convincing to me. Sure, it appeals to my anti-elitism, but it also neglects the fact that Europe went willingly to war in 1914. I was really struck by the recent documentary, They Shall Not Grow Old, really showed this really well. Effectively, faced with the relative utopia of the Edwardian age, the masses on the whole marched gleefully to war. Yeah? The question is, how does the market and consumer culture regulate what I think is essentially a kind of death drive, this desire for the dystopian? I'm thinking of Ernst Yellner, the anthropologist who understood consumer culture as there to provide that type of regulation that by channeling our desires into commodities, that that would somehow help pacify the population. Is that what you're getting at? Well, um, I've got a favourite example that I use to illustrate this, yeah? And it's certainly not very literary, so that's even better. That's watching Jurassic, uh, Jurassic Park or Jurassic World, which is some of my favourite movies. Okay, so uh, the the one I'm thinking here is the reboot, which was Jurassic World, where they all end up on this... Um, well, we all know what happens. So we, we go along to a theme park, yeah, which is uh, like on a tropical island. And when you arrive there, you know, it's like getting to Disneyland or one of these kinds of big theme parks. Uh, but, of course, the um, unique feature about this particular entertainment environment is, is that there are dinosaurs there, there are real dinosaurs that have been brought back to life through the miracles of genetic or science or manipulating DNA. Uh, now, in Jurassic World, it's slightly different from the other one, other previous uh, movies, uh, in that they uh, haven't just brought back dinosaurs from the past, they've recreated a new dinosaur, OK? Uh, a, a dinosaur, if you like, that is synthetic. It, it's uh, a complete made-up creature that's got bits of Tyrannosaurus rex and bits of all... I think it's called the Indominus rex or something like this, yeah? And uh, this uh, invent, this new dinosaur that they've created has got all of these amazing uh, qualities. It suggests it's either got some kind of intelligence, it can disappear into its surroundings like a chameleon and things like this. So essentially we've created this creature that we can invest all of our dystopian fears and concerns in. Now, there's a great question, though, <laughs> that this movie poses at the beginning, which is this. What kind of world do we live in where we get bored by the idea of looking at normal, everyday dinosaurs? <laughs> that the marketers, the focus groups, have to go out of their way to create something even more spectacular, even more dangerous, even more terrifying. As if seeing traditional dinosaurs is kind of passe boring and isn't going to continue to create, uh, generate enough revenues and, and therefore reproduce capital, yeah? That's, that's a really interesting idea. What kind of world do we live in when we get bored with the idea of looking at Tyrannosaurus rexes? Okay, so what happens is everybody arrives at the park, all the kids or whatever, and there's all these usual kind of Hollywood narratives there about relationships and whatever. And uh, everything's fine to begin with. And uh, they're all, wow, look at that, there's a big dinosaur and so on. Now, that lasts for about five minutes. The question is, how long do you, uh, do you want to watch Jurassic World where people are actually at this amazing theme park having a nice time in Utopia? I'd say probably about five minutes is probably pushing it. 
Then after that, of course, what do we really want to see? We want to see everybody getting eaten by dinosaurs, yeah? We want to see... And there's something democratic about the dystopia of Jurassic World because we want to see everybody getting eaten by them. We want to see young people, old people, disabled people, people of different ethnic backgrounds, uh, everybody. There's something democratic about the terror of Jurassic World, which is everybody is equal when it comes to uh, their, their potential to be dinosaur food, okay? Now, the reason I really think this is a super narrative is because it illustrates that given the choice between wanting to indulge in dystopian visions or utopian ones, the dystopian ones are far, far more valuable, they're far, far more attractive, and ultimately they're much more desirable. Uh, which is why, <laughs> to answer this one, uh, it's far, far easier for us to imagine the end of the world than to, end, to imagine the end of capitalism. Because somewhere, not so deep down, this is what we, we really desire, and this is what we invest in the market for. This has also been a key interest of mine, and as it would seem that in much of critical literature, Capitalism is sort of seen as an epiphenomenon, this vampiric force that comes from the outside. But what if in instead we would look at it as a product of our very desiring relations itself? Uh, also reminded of the movie Alien, where they often refer to the alien as the perfect creature. And of course, as psychoanalytic literature would inform us, of course, when you reach perfection, when you reach the utopia, what you get is naturally the nightmare. If I could just add to that, there was a psychoanalyst writing around the time of the Second World War called Edward Glover, um, who warned that he thought that a lot of the pacifists who were trying to campaign for peace couldn't be trusted, that they might be warmongers themselves, that at a certain point the psyche, in the psyche the desire for peace corresponds with the desire for destruction and war as well, and hence we should be very, very cautious of pacifists. Zizek made the example, I think it was, of an old Italian novel, where the general plot is that there's two cities separated by a river, and on paper they are in war uh, against each other, but there has been no act of war committed for ages. So, of course, what happens in this novel then is that somebody takes something like a rowing boat, rows next to the next city and throws a stone at them to commit an act of war because this peacetime was, in the end, way too unbearable. So a utopia, in a sense, that must be ruptured. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that this, this is how I interpret Baudrillard and Zizek's Too Bad You're in Paradise argument, yeah? Which is basically, look, the one thing that you want to be worried about more than anything else is getting what you want. Because if you do, then the consequences of it are terrifying, psychologically, socially, and philosophically, yeah? That the market operates by continually putting our desires out of our reach. Unfortunately, compared to organized religion or whatever it might be, perhaps it puts it a little bit too close to us. Yeah? I think that it's, you know, this is where we move from the discussion of utopia and dystopia into a discussion about psychoanalysis. I mean, let, let's think about some of the classic utopian narratives of capitalism. 
like Robinson Crusoe, for example, yeah, is often considered to be this foundational myth for capitalism. But that's a very individualistic utopia, but basically one that's not very imaginative in some ways, you know. For me, I think what's more interesting as a as a foundational market ideology in utopia is uh, Mandeville's Fable of Bees, right? So um, if you're unfamiliar with it, then basically Mandeville tells the story of the, of the grumbling hive, yeah? Of the bees in the hive. And he says at some point, the hive manages to create perfect harmony, happiness and ease, yeah? And consequently... The, the hive descends into weakness and decline and is eventually dominated and overrun by much, much more innovative, entrepreneurial, aggressive, destructive hives, yeah? So, essentially, Mandeville's argument is to say we can achieve utopia simply by being selfish, avaricious, uh, violent, uh, and so on, yeah? That actually, by pursuing the dystopia, one of the outcomes will be utopia. <laughs> now, I think that this is absolutely brilliant, yeah? It is, the, for me, is the fundamental underlying mythological na- narrative of contemporary capitalism. What it says is, yeah, you can still have utopian ambitions and desires for some times in the future, And the best way to achieve that is to be completely selfish, self-orientated, destructive and avaricious now, yeah? In fact, you could say you have a duty to do that, yeah? So consequently, if you want to save the environment, if you want to save uh, uh, polar bears so they're not... Then the best thing you can do is burn oil, yeah? Now, you might not be able to understand how that dystopic uh, behaviour now will create the utopia in the future... But Mandeville's lesson is you don't need to worry about that. In fact, if you do worry about it now, you will create the dystopia. And this is the ultimate logic underlying much of the kind of centre and far-right market-orientated fundamentalism, which uh, essentially uses it as a basis of criticism, to criticise uh, social democratic or more socialist-orientated policies and practices. Yeah. So I think that this is a much more sophisticated understanding of why dystopia is much more important for us understanding the mechanics of contemporary society than utopia. Well, which takes us to our present moment, James, which clearly is is extremely dystopian in that we're in lockdown. There's huge amount of debt and risk and fear. But on the other hand, we have this... Uh, environmental fantasy that the flights are grounded, that sustainability now becomes something of a possibility, that people are staying at home from work and so on. It seems, again, we get this correspondence of the best of times and the worst of times. Yeah, I I, I need to be fairly careful on how I talk about this because I realise it's very close to people's uh, lived experiences at the moment. I, generally speaking, I see most of the uh, representation of the current crisis as being fairly dystopic, for sure, but it's a dystopia that we desire. We've been dreaming and fantasising about this kind of collapse for a long, long time. And now it's happened, we're enjoying the moment of it happening. 
Yeah. Now, obviously, there's going to be all kinds of problems that are a consequence. It's like there's going to be a big hangover from this, and that's to put it mildly. Yeah. But at the moment, I don't think that we can really contemplate exactly what that's going to be like. So I would encourage us all to indulge in the dystopia for the moment. It's it is a space in which we can achieve and uh, realise lots of our deeply repressed fantasies and desire of destruction, Armageddon and catastrophe. And one of the things that I'm struck by when I'm kind of picking up on the news reports, for instance, every day is that there really isn't any news at all apart from more and more people are dying from this virus, right? Which is a fairly predictable and unchanging narrative, yeah? And yet uh, this insistence, if you like, this kind of global focus, this global attention that we're all thinking about the same thing at the moment, yeah, which gives us a great feeling and sense of global solidarity. I think that we can understand the current crisis pretty much as one in which we can realise some of those fantasies for the end of the world, for one of a better, better way of putting it. You also mentioned automation and algorithms. So, for example, when we think of social media these days and how they are largely guided by algorithms, there is a sense that we are sort of giving away something of our humanity to the machines. Ray Brazier, in his development of Adorno and Horkheimer's dialectic, said that the problem with modernity was that modernity's ideal of rationality sacrificed sacrifice itself. Well, that's a problem because even if you think you kind of do away with the sacrificial thinking, it always uh, comes in through the back door, all these destructive tendencies, this desire for utopia and annihilation. So I was thinking about the global stock exchange and uh, how much humans still have control over it. Now, in the Terminator movies, of course, the Skynet as the technological harbinger of the end of humanity can only act when it gains self-awareness, essentially creating an image of humanity itself. But I would argue that we already have a sort of a Skynet in the form of a global stock exchange, because nobody can really stop it at this point. And uh, when, you, when you look at how it functions, it is massively run by automated algorithms with decreasing human input at any point of the system. So nobody can pull the plug anymore, really. So what we see there is a stock exchange that has no anthropomorphic need for silly self-awareness to function you know, perfectly. So will we see more of this, what Alan has also called the hollowing out, so machines removing the need for human skill, human participation in any systemic activity? And might this be ironically utopian again? Yeah, I, I think uh, the Terminator um, franchise is a brilliant illustration of this, of course, uh, and it, it explains exactly what you said. For a start, it fulfills everything that we've been talking about, this, this desire for dystopia. Yeah, uh, I was watching the uh, original Terminator movie only a couple of weeks ago, actually, 
for various reasons. And uh, I was working with some young people, okay? Uh, they, they said how, even though they thought the special effects weren't particularly good, because it was made in the mid-1980s, which is nevertheless a bit retro and cool for that reason, they realised just how many references and how how important that film was for many contemporary video games, yeah? Uh, essentially, Call of Duty or Halo or whatever borrow so heavily upon the tropes and narratives in these, in these films. Now, uh, with regards to the way in which uh, Skynet has evolved over the franchise, of course, in the last uh, version, Skynet's completely been replaced by... Uh, by a different organisation uh, in an alternative timeline, I think. But what the Skynet um, example illustrates from a retro point of view is that Skynet doesn't need to become self-aware in order to fill that dystopian vision. This is why I think that it was ultimately a fa our fantasy of an otherwise benevolent or malevolent capitalism. The illustration of that, I think, was come from a book that I was recently reading on... Um, general artificial intelligence. And it said something like this. I think this is the analogy that it used. It said, um, well, let's say we're going to build a dam, yeah? We're going to build a dam in order to generate um, electricity, okay? And we, we build the structure and so on, and we, we uh, flood the valley. And when we do so, we destroy ant colonies as a result. We didn't even know the ant colonies were there, Yeah. Uh, we certainly had no uh, ill will geared towards the ant colonies at all. They, they didn't feature at all in our in our um, plans or thoughts about constructing the dam. The book says what we need on artificial intelligence. What we need to do is make sure that we are the ant hills. <laughs> yeah? It isn't that the dam builders are going to think this is really going to be bad for humanity and kind of take some kind of self-protective or self-defensive counter, pre-counter-strike against humanity, because it might, if you like, pull the plug. Actually, AI, and like you've just described about the stock exchange, can continue to reproduce itself without any consideration at all for what we might call the human, yeah? That, that's the ultimate kind of dystopian outcome, of course, because the dystopia is not one in which humans, in the sense of being punished or are subject to the uh, ill will or uh, manipulation of any other agency or structure. On the contrary, humanity, our existence, our values or whatever, are literally completely irrelevant in the grand scheme of things, yeah? In a sense, then, dystopia gives us an opportunity to try and bring some kind of system of values back into our social imagination. Thank you, James. This will make for a wonderfully spicy episode, I'm sure. Thanks, James. It was wonderful. Oh, thanks very much.